This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. And life is about birth, life and death, so that is the garden as well. It's like what we do in our whole lifespan happens here in one year. And I think that works on your, you know, on your soul, in a way. The name Piet Audolf is one of those rare names in the plant world that stands a good chance of being recognized even by people not in the plant world. His name is synonymous with a very particular and particularly emotive planting style, rich in large sweeps of naturalistically grouped herbaceous perennials, often North American wildflower and prairie plants, and is characterized by dramatic seasonal dynamics and ecological grounding. Envision, you're standing in a grassy meadow filled with late summer colors. The grasses are high and in seed. The colors of the field are a natural blend of various pools of golden blonde, nut brown, and chocolate brown. There's dark green and mid-green, late summer yellows, burnt orange, wine reds. The wind is riffling the seed heads, shapely species of coneflowers, cow parsleys, heleniums. The sky is blue. Birds and bees add life's happiest vibrational frequency. Time is both tangibly moving, yet easy. This is how I think of a garden by Pete, as he is often known. Most people's response to his gardens is both physical and intuitive. It is food, it is beauty. It looks simple and is deeply complex. In the business of plantsmanship and powerful garden design since the mid-1980s, in the last few years, Pete's already successful career has been further expanded by the completion and opening of the Highline Gardens in New York City, on which Pete served as garden designer. Additionally, a book chronicling the span of his life and career at Humelo, his family home and garden in the Netherlands, was written by friend, fellow plantsman and writer Noel Kingsbury and published in 2015 in celebration of Pete's 70th birthday. To top all of that, we have a new documentary filmed and produced over two years by Thomas Piper, Five Seasons, The Gardens of Pete Aldolf. Today we're joined by Tom to speak with us about the life work, and broad cultural impact of this passionate, creative, visionary plantsman. The film has been widely screened, but has an official opening at the International Film Center in New York City on June 13th, at which both Pete and Tom will be present. Another opening will take place in Los Angeles on June 29th, at which Tom will be present. Tom joins us today via Skype to share with us the journey of this plantsman and his own journey making this film. Welcome, Tom. Thanks. Thanks very much, Jennifer. Give us a little bit of background on you and your work as a filmmaker. Is this the, the, the film you did on the High Line and then the film that you ha are just about to officially open on Pete? Are these your first foray into the world of plants, people, and gardens as art? Yes. I, I should say that the 
previous film I did was partially on the High Line, but also on the work at Lincoln Center that Diller Scafidio and Renfro had done. They're the design oh. architects for the High Line. Yes. And so that film was more about the the history and story of that firm, Diller, Scafidio, and Renfro, and then also the sort of design aspects of the High Line that they were involved in. So it had less to do, I mean, there was mention of the plants, but it was less focused on that. Mm-hmm. But obviously while shooting that, I, I mean, I spent days and days and days and hours and hours on the High Line. And so it was, the impact of that was certainly made enough of an impression that that wanting to do something with Pete became um, a really appealing idea, even from before I had a chance to meet him. Yeah. Had you known his name prior to working on that film? My first experience in one of Pete's gardens was actually, I've been doing films about architects and architecture for maybe the last six or seven years now. Mm -hmm. And I'd been working on a film about a Chicago architect named Jeannie Gang. Mm. And she has a building in downtown Chicago that she had just completed and and in the process of talking to her about how to shoot it and where to shoot it from, she said, oh, if you go down to Millennium Park from right in front of the Art <laughs> Institute, you can get a great view of it. And, um, and she sort of mentioned there's this new garden there as well, but that was kind of all the heads up she gave me. You know, I drove around, I got access into the park from there. And as I was walking through the garden, you know, sort of with a tripod on my shoulder, I just became completely transfixed by the garden around me, which was Pete's Lurie Garden. And at that point, it was probably probably only a year old at that point. So it was still quite young, not fully mature, but you know, just immediately took me to another place. And I knew nothing of him at that point. I didn't know him by name at all. So that was my initial experience of one of his gardens. And I, I think that was always the experience that that sort of underpinned the idea of or the belief that it could be an interesting documentary. I mean, just that that it had that kind of impact took me a while to sort of get my bearings and realize I was there to actually do something else besides just wander around in the garden, so. (laughs) So the universe kept bumping you into the work and the beauty of Pete until finally you decide to work with him on creating a movie. Tell us a little bit about that process and proposing this to Pete and and what your original vision might have been? Yeah, it was more that I, I kept trying to work out a way that I could at least talk to him during the making of the, the Diller Scafidio and Renfro film, but it just never worked out with his schedule. And so there was there was a kind of initial back and forth and email connection, but it wasn't until probably a year or two after that film had been finished that a friend of mine who is now the director of the Garden Museum in London mm-hmm. was sort of mentioned that Pete was coming to New York and he said, oh, I could probably put you in touch and you guys should just get together, have a drink or whatever. And and so we did. We just met and, and had a beer and, and he, Pete pulled out his iPad and started to show me literally hundreds of photographs that he had taken of his garden in Homolo primarily, but, you know, of other projects as well. And it was just, you know, we got along well enough that I think he sort of felt like it wouldn't be too much of a nuisance if he agreed to let me sort of come by and and visit, which at the at the outset, it was really just this idea that I'd come to Homolo and and shoot a little bit and see what, what I could find in, in just doing that one trip. And so the ambition wasn't you know, it was certainly not fully formed from the outset that I would end up with a 
a feature length documentary like like I did. So it was really, you know, just sort of a casual interaction, but it was it was really seeing his photographs and seeing the way that he sees his garden that really one it really helped me as I learned to try and shoot it because I having not really shot plants before or landscapes primarily but it was also it just reaffirmed this idea that I had that the way I was responding to it as a from an aesthetic point of view was 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 there was really you know that the way he looks at his gardens is very much in an abstracted sense of of how they work as compositions and not so much about a you know a sweeping vista or a, or a wide view of a garden and a and a background behind it I mean they're all very internal compositions Mm-hmm. that are you know they don't, there's no sky typically there's no trees there's no it's just the plants themselves mm-hmm. and i think that word composition really uh, brings up some of what you really get to in the movie with him in person i would love to talk a little bit more about his history and his background that brings him to this sort of iconic status that he now holds in in the plant and garden design world. And then let's get into how you constructed and edited the movie into what it now is. Sure, sure. When you started this, did you go back and do a lot of research in order to be conversant in his history and the context of his work in the sort of trajectory of garden design over the last 50 years? Um, no, is the straight answer. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I make this confession whenever we're at screenings together and doing like a Q&A or something, I always feel compelled to make the confession that I'm not a gardener. I wasn't a gardener before, um, you know, that I really came to this from, as I said, from a kind of aesthetic response to his work. I mean, having made films before architecture and design, I'd made a lot of films about artists, visual artists. And, and so that you know, that's sort of where I was coming from. But I also, I don't know, in just the sort of tradition of how I learned to make films and, and the, the people that inspired me to make films, I mean, it was very much, you know, in some sort of verite tradition, some idea of that what I hope to try and make the movie be is a representation of what I discovered along the path of making it. I tried to do enough research so that I wasn't just completely blind or, or, or ignorant of what I was getting into, but it was as much about what I would learn in the process of making the film as what I hoped that the film could also represent or people who could would get the same experience that I got. Mm-hmm. I mean, in all these projects that, I, that I've done, it's, you know, I'm very mindful of the fact that it's an incredibly privileged access to very creative people. So whether it's an artist like Ellsworth Kelly or, or architects like Diller Scafidio or, or someone like Pete, that it's, you know, that I get to spend the time that I do with them, but also in the midst of them actually creating things. So being in the studio with them, seeing them actually work, um, you know, that I, that I recognize that as being an incredible privilege. And what I hope is that I can somehow give that to a wider audience, people who you know probably otherwise wouldn't be just invited into Pete's studio. Mm-hmm. It's not a process of trying to devour as much background information and research information as much as trying to, to recognize what I can learn in the process of making it. Mm-hmm. In fact, while watching it and then at the end when I'm thinking about the movie, it occurred to me that you either did a lot of research or you did very you know, just the basic amount that you needed because you were able to craft what feels like 
as you just said, it feels like this fresh discovery. And it isn't bogged down with all of the baggage of garden design, history, protocol, whatever it might be. And you come at it with this wonderful eye of a person and his creative talent and passion. And I think one of the wonderful things that happens in the course of this movie, and I'm now that I'm hearing a little bit more about your background, what strikes me is that certainly one of the tenets of my program is that gardening is part of our cultural literacy on par with the other fine arts, with architecture, with literature. And this movie and the way you have portrayed Pete certainly places his work in that context, which for people who haven't yet seen the movie, Five Seasons starts with a wonderful scene, a very evocative scene, close up of Pete and his coloring tools, a variety of pens and pencils and papers working on a design and you hear the sound of the pen on the paper and it's it's incredibly dynamic at the same time that it's very focused. Talk to us about where you go from here and and how you decided to call it five seasons and then structure it over five seasons, Tom. I mean, when I met with Pete in New York that one time and we talked about the possibility of doing something, however small it might have seemed or thought about at the time, it was, you know, Pete said, oh, why don't you come to visit Home Alone? And it just kind of lined up that he said it worked out for my schedule. And he said, oh, if you come in October, I'll be teaching this workshop. So it might be a good time to see other people around and and visiting the garden. And it it just felt like, you know, I knew enough of Pete's work to know that it was very much about the the fall and into the winter and the, the colors going from from green to brown and, and the seed heads and, and all that he sort of celebrates in his designs. But the fact that I just started shooting in October, I mean, it really felt like that was the beginning of the movie. And and it's not, it's not often that it has to be strictly chronological as to when a movie starts, not the first time you turn on the camera. But in this case, it really felt like this, this made the most sense as a place to start, both because of the way his work his designs are and the way he's sort of celebrated for designing through the end of a, a plant's life cycle, perennial plants in particular. And and then once I sort of realized that could be the beginning of the movie, I, and once I realized I could go further with when Pete started to become more of a character to me, and it wasn't just going to be about visiting his garden in Humalo, but that he could actually carry the film as an interesting, as an interesting person, then the idea of structuring it through all four seasons or one year's worth of of seasons really felt like that was the way to do justice to this sort of fundamental idea of his that that plants you know that you don't just design a garden for the summer and then as soon as everything sort of starts to you know the blooms off the rose then you cut it all back and wait for you know the next year to come around again next spring to come around um so that it just became you know, trying to lay out a few constraints to then dictate how I would try and put the movie together. And it just felt like that was um, a structure that was very sympathetic to the way he designs a garden. So it felt like the movie should follow follow his lead in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the idea, too, that that I mean, I love the idea that if you start and fall, then the audience really has to hang in there until 
summer or when they might otherwise be used to expecting a garden to be shown in, in its in its glory, you know, so that they really have to they have to <laughs> buy into this idea right away that they're going to have to sit through all of winter and then into spring before they get any sort of, you know, typical payoff that they might have been expecting. So I, I like that idea as well. This scene after the coloring design scene where you are actually seeing time-lapse growth in the garden at Humalo really sets the tone for the rest of the film in terms of its interplay between conversation with Pete, conversation recorded of Pete with other people, and then kind of close-ups and landscape shots in motion of the different gardens. A lot of Humalo, but you also visit Dursley, you visit the High Line, you visit the Lurie, you visit Battery Park, a, a whole host of gardens that he's done around the world over the course of his career. And he and his wife, Anya, found the house and garden at Humalo and opened their original nursery there in the early 1980s. He published his first book, I think, in 1990. And so his career has really matured and grown and deepened in many ways over the course of this last 25, 28 years. When you went to put the movie all together into overview, can you describe for us what were the highlights that really you you wanted to hang the narrative on? I think the once I'd sort of settled on the idea of the the seasons as the structure, the trick became, I mean, at first I was just sort of seeing, again, this sort of verite idea of just sort of letting things happen and trying to capture them as best I could, but really sort of seeing how things played out. And that, I mean, especially true in terms of the garden, I knew of the idea of Pete celebrating plants as they go dormant and seed heads and colors of, of winter. But I'd never actually, other than on the High Line, which you don't have as much intimate, I mean, if it snows on the High Line, they don't let you up there, things like that. So to be able to see it was really interesting and it was really thrilling for me. And I just thought those would be, you know, I felt like those would be the real high points that having having set it up so that people would have to go from fall to winter as the first pass of the chapters in the movie that I was hoping that that would there would be it would be worth it and so being able to see the gardens in winter and then have Pete really the common thing I always wanted to have to come back to was visiting him as much as the film would travel around to these other gardens is always come back to him in his own garden mm -hmm. and just sort of wandering around and talking about it and and he did you know, he was just amazing at being, at allowing himself to just both wander, but then also kind of, you know, verbally wander. I mean, he just sort of waxing philosophic at times, mm -hmm. I guess. But, mm -hmm. you know, that was sort of unexpected as well. I mean, my first visit with him, he was with, there was a large workshop of people visiting. And so he was very much speaking directly to a crowd. And he's Dutch. He's very Dutch sometimes, I think. But he, you know, so he's not the most loquacious. He doesn't mm -hmm. talk a lot when it's not necessary. But so being able to sort of get into those moments alone in the garden where it's, you know, it almost feels like he's just kind of thinking out loud. Um, those really felt like the, the most magical moments and, and what really, I think, sort of carry the movie. I mean, as much as it's great to go to all these amazing places and see all these amazing gardens, it wouldn't, it would just be a, a pretty slideshow, if not for him sort of sustaining 
the audience's interest over the course of five seasons. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with Thomas Piper, filmmaker. His career to date has focused on the lives and work of creative people across mostly the art and architectural fields, with his newest film on the life and artistic design process of garden designer and plantsman Pete Aldolf, he ventured for the first time into the field of landscape design. We'll be back to hear more about Tom's journey making the movie and more about the process of Pete's work after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So one of the things that's really hard to get across in this conversation about the movie Five Seasons is the really effective way that Tom captures some of the more ethereal aspects that are in part at the root of our gardening love and instincts. This movie is both titled and structured in five seasons, but in each season, through the whole round of them, there are brief but important sections in which you're just looking at the garden in this moment. Sometimes it's Pete's garden at Humalo. Sometimes we're in one of the gardens he's designed around the world. But no matter where you are, these scenes are quite captivating and intimate, not because they're gratuitous flower porn, as we sometimes joke, but because they are so surprisingly intimate, as though Piper got not only into Pete's internal view, but into each of ours as gardeners. He seemed to me to capture the essence of those moments when we stand for a brief second at the kitchen window, say, and lose track of time in between this dish and the next dish. We just lose ourselves in the light filtering through the foliage. Those moments when we're on our way through the garden to do this or that and we stop for just a second and watch the way light or rain or something shimmers across a spider's web or the breeze catches and dances with the grass's fairy wand seed heads. They're such fleeting moments. They're not planned, and most times I would wager we hardly remember they happened. We get pulled back out of the moment of sensual reverie and communion, and we're back at whatever it was we were doing. The same person on the other side of the moment, but better. I loved this aspect about the movie, and the more they connected to the way I sometimes perfectly connect with the garden and its plant companions, the more I liked the movie. Maybe this is part of what Pete is referencing when he says at some point in the movie, gardening is a promise. It's not always about what is there, but looking forward to what will be there. Now, back to the conversation with Tom Piper about his encounters over several years making this film with the life and work of Pete Aldolf and his gardens. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with New York-based filmmaker Tom Piper. He spent the better part of 2016 and 2017 shadowing and traveling with the Dutch garden designer and plantsman Pete Aldolf in order to document his design process and the influence of his work on the world of landscape and planting design. Piper's movie, Five Seasons, The Gardens of Pete Aldolf, opens officially in New York City on June 13th at the International Film Center with both Pete and Tom in attendance. Welcome back. 
And you do have with his narrative and then the way you have filmed the different gardens, you, you do get a sense of some of the big milestones in his career where he himself indicates that he made a shift or he turned a corner in his own view, one of those being certainly the all of the plant experiments that he did with Anya at the nursery and that first book with Hank Gerritsen, that awakening for him of this naturalistic design that didn't mimic nature exactly, but as he says, sort of takes naturalistic elements and makes them into something that you would dream of seeing. And then the Lurie Garden seemed to be a big turning point, as did the High Line. Some of that came out of paying attention to Pete when he would tell me stories. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, there's there's a lot of things captured on film, but we spent just as much time you know, I would just come and stay with them for two or three days at a time and and we'd have, you know, sit around the dinner table together. And, and so it was as much of the research in that case would probably just be, you know, the anecdotes, the stories, the, the kind of talking we would do when he, when he wasn't on camera. And certainly the story of of the Lurie Garden, you know, he, he will always say that's really the most pivotal project in terms of how he, his plantings, design and style evolved. But the fact that that was all kind of came from his visit to some of the reclaimed and and restored prairies in the in the greater sort of Chicago area, you know, mm-hmm. the, in, in Illinois, and just being able to then say, oh, can we go visit some of those and sort of retrace your steps in terms of how that went. And then the fact that Roy Diblett could come who, you know, Roy himself is a fantastic character. And so that, you know, there was a little bit of engineering of that scene of where we we all went to the Morton Arboretum to the Schulenberg Prairie there. Mm-hmm. Um, so for people who aren't familiar, Roy Diblick is the owner of North Wind Perennials in Burlington, Wisconsin. And he and Pete, I think, have worked on several gardens, including the Lurie Garden. And it was Roy who encouraged Pete to visit the prairie plants at the Schulenberg Prairie Restoration. That's exactly how it happened, you know, 10, 11 years prior when when Pete was actually, you know, in the middle of designing the Lurie. I mean, he he was already working on his designs and then... And then I think Roy just mentioned to him, like, oh, we should come check out this prairie. And and doing that, that kind of shifted everything for him. That scene where you see Pete visiting the the restoration prairie, one one of the best documented prairie restoration projects in our central United States, it's an incredibly human moment of him sort of greeting these plants whom he takes to be his friends and seeing them in their places is it's a very moving moment actually people in the film would say things like oh pete's real friends are the plants when you see him his reaction of seeing those baptisia again in the in the schulenberg prairie i mean that, that like that kind of joy mm-hmm. is really astounding to mm-hmm. see the look on his face and you realize like that's like that's the pinnacle for him i think that's really the essence for pete and and that's why i mean that trip but also certainly going to pennsylvania to the white clay creek mm. uh, preserve with rick dark i mean that was yeah and he meets you know, the solid day go that was a beautiful moment and yeah. then and then his almost like childlike wonder at 
the wildflowers in bloom in West Texas in the spring. That was fabulous. And that was just, you know, we got really fortunate with it was a, a, a banner year for it the was, wildflower. Yeah. I mean, everybody was talking about it. But but yeah, that's, you know, that's literally what he likes to do with his with his free time when he's not working. He's literally, you know, the joy for him is to just go visit other landscapes, other places, other environments, ecosystems, and and sort of see how they work. And it's an astounding appreciation for, and then the ability to translate. I mean, I think the most moving thing that he would say, and maybe the thing that I sort of latched onto earliest in the project was this idea that the High Line, that the Lurie Garden, I mean, they're all designed, they're manufactured, they're not natural, and, and they're not even entirely native plants. I mean, they're artificial constructs, but that the idea that he's trying to evoke some sort of emotional response in people by using what he finds in wild areas or in nature. I mean, again, these words are all kind of slippery sometimes, but mm -hmm. the strength of any art is what it evokes in you on an emotional level or mm -hmm. on at least an intuitive, non-thinking, subconscious level. Yeah. He has a wonderful moment when he is in conversation with James Corner, who was the lead construction person on the High Line, in which he says, you can be a botanist and know a lot about how plants are built up. You can be an ecologist and know exactly what community a plant grows in and where it grows in the world. I am neither. I know a lot of plants because I love plants. I know where they grow because I love to see them where they grow. Plants for me are a medium, a medium to bring out emotion, a very strong emotion in the field. That's why I always took every opportunity to go outside the private garden. If I like it, I figure everyone will like it. That is really what I always thought. If I do what I do for just two people, that is too little. And I loved this expression of his impulse with being known as an incredibly knowledgeable plantsman. And yet this is more than just a kind of myopic looking at individual plants. It is, as you say, this emotional response to the world at large. And that depth of knowledge, I mean, I think that's something that, that as someone who came to this um, without a, a gardening background or, or appreciation necessarily for for the um, the practice of gardening, I, to me the most profound thing was to realize, you know, how deep that horticultural knowledge is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think just in general, I was astounded by how much there is to know or, mm -hmm. or how the complications involved in knowing all that. But obviously what Pete celebrated for is just this unmatched or unrivaled knowledge of the plants that, that he works with. In the environments that he works in and the plants that he works with, you realize, and when you talk to other people, those that are themselves celebrated for their horticultural knowledge, you know, they all kind of shake their head. And it's this, this idea that he's, he's just amassed more data that he can work with. And then what he does with that is obviously, I think, where the real magic happens. Mm -hmm. but, but it starts with just, um, it was actually James Corner had a, had a great line in an interview that he did, I think it was in New York Times or something. But, you know, he basically was saying it's like with a chef, you know, what separates the great from the merely good or whatever is that you know they know so much about 
the materials they're working with. So, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to to make really astounding food, you have to really know what it is you're doing and what you're working with and what you can do with what you're working with. And I think that's exactly what Pete does. I mean, it's not merely that he has the knowledge, but he but he has so much of it that he can do things that other people hadn't considered or didn't think were possible. Or I think it's that's it starts with that really profound base of knowledge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the the plant palette, which relies heavily on herbaceous perennials from around the world. He loves North American prairie plants. He loves wildflowers of of the Mediterranean. He loves grasses. He loves umbels. And that's, I think, one of the elements that really comes across the way you have filmed the movie is these sweeping, interwoven plants repeated over large areas. I mean, I think he mentioned that the Dursleyd uh, Hauser and Worth Garden in Somerset, England, had 57,000 plants in the original design planting plan. What's nice for, as a plant person is you don't lose the horticultural intelligence of this man, even though we're looking at him and being introduced to him from a very artistic kind of overview sense. And some of the primary kind of conversational threads in the horticultural world right now are brought up and delved into, maybe not completely, but they are referred to in meaningful ways throughout the film. This includes the idea of whether or not you need to be a purist native plant person to your region, whether everything in a garden needs to be native to that exact environment, whether or not large urban gardens really are helping to improve ecological life and health in an urban environment or, or any environment, whether or not gardens make a significant difference in an era of extinction. And he is philosophical throughout the movie, but he also isn't rigid and he isn't offensively didactic in any way. So he, he, will, he will say, I don't really know if this is saving the world, but it saved me. And that was a really sort of humble and beautiful moment of him acknowledging this larger issue that gardeners are dealing with at this time, and yet not feeling as though he had to come out with a declarative statement about it. Yes, I, I think he, the beauty of, well, and certainly what's worked great for the, the prospects of the film and reaching an audience is that Pete really... You know, there's something about his work that speaks to a really wide range of audiences. And, and I think people who are very committed to the idea of native plants, for instance, can see something in his work. And yet he's not, as you say, he's not an evangelist for that sort of thing. I mean, I think he's aware of all these things and he, he, and he wants his work to reflect all these things, but, it, but not at the expense of what he's ultimately trying to do, which is just find an outlet for his creativity. You know, what's beautiful about it is that it can speak to so many different people in different ways, but the pursuit of it and the process of it is this really pure and probably not easy road, which is true of anyone who's kind of committed themselves to a, a strictly creative practice. I mean, it, it just can't, it's not... We celebrate it and we romanticize it and we love when it's a success, but it it's, can't be an easy thing to be that committed. And and as he says, it's like he has no other choice. You know, if he didn't find this, he doesn't he doesn't know what he would have done. 
I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Piet Aldolf is a well-known and revered Dutch garden designer and plantsman. Even if you're not sure you know his name, if you saw one of his public gardens, you would know the style of garden and planting design, which he is widely attributed as having started and led worldwide. He came on the European garden scene with his first book, Dream Plants, which was published in 1990 and co-written with fellow plantsman Henk Gerritsen. This book introduced the gardening world to a whole new set of favorite garden plants, focused heavily on seasonally dynamic herbaceous perennials and self-seeding wildflowers. His characteristic planting palette and style is sometimes known as the new perennial or the Dutch wave movement in garden design. We'll be back after a break to hear more about this powerful public garden designer. Stay with us. It's me, Jennifer, again. The parallels between life and the nature of the garden is not lost on any of us, I dare say. But to follow Pete Aldolf's creative and gardening process through his own home garden really highlights the parallels between this man and his garden of close to 40 years. We see him walking the garden in all seasons. We see him interacting with the flowers and with the seed heads. We see him gazing at its various elements and reflecting. The movie starts in the fall and ends in the late fall a year later. Fall, the season of seed heads and skeletons, seems to call to Pete more than any other season in the garden. At one bittersweet moment, he points out, I'm 71, well into the fall, I think. The beauty is still there. I won't come back, but they will, he says, referring to the plants. He goes on, Beauty is in so many things you wouldn't think of. Beauty in ugliness, in death, in decay, in the unexpected. I think it's our journey in life to discover what real beauty is, to find beauty in things that are at first not beautiful, he finishes. I like the layered interplay that Piper illustrates about creativity, about the garden, about being a gardening and plant-loving person in his lens on Pete Aldolf. It is not all pretty flowers, is it? But neither is life. And in this lens, we as people are firmly in the nature of our gardens, not outside or above them somehow. Finding beauty in the ugliness and in the decay, in death even, one of the hardest parts of both life and love is not always easy. But in the garden, such lessons always seem like just another season of a longer and ongoing journey, whether you're 22, 52, or 72. Do you feel this? Okay, now back to Tom Piper and Five Seasons, The Gardens of Pete Aldolf. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. If Pete Aldal first came into the European public eye in a big way with his first book in 1990, it was in 2004 when his groundbreaking planting designs in the Lurie Garden of Chicago's Millennium Park that the U.S. was solidly introduced to his creative vision. Lurie Park is described as an urban model of responsible horticulture, which provides a healthy habitat for a wide variety of plants, animals, and insects, and people. 
the Lurie Garden is a leader in landscape architecture, garden design, responsible maintenance practices, and dynamic public programming in an extremely urban environment. The garden offers a four-season experience blending Chicago's past, present, and future with bold design, dramatic forms, and intimate spaces. The Lurie was the first public garden that filmmaker Thomas Piper met of Pete's, and it really stuck with him. We're back after a break to speak more with Tom about the process and journey of his new documentary film, Five Seasons, The Gardens of Pete Aldolf. Welcome back. Those were some interesting flashback moments to their early life and the acknowledgement that Anya had been the breadwinner while he was trying to find what he wanted to do in this world. And he did not want to take over the work of his mother and father in a restaurant and bar. And it took him a couple of experimental job pursuits. I think he mentioned a fish industry job and others before he landed in a garden center and he realized that the plants were the solution to what he wanted to create in this world. I think in many ways it's, you know, it's almost like a, an affliction or something. I mean, I think anybody who becomes committed, I think artists talk about it a lot, but you know, it's like at an early age, they recognize that they need to do this thing. And then the rest of their life becomes about how they can accommodate this this intense passion and um, and yeah, I, I mean, I love the idea that Pete took a long time to find the outlet for this creativity. And of course, you know, Anya is she's a remarkable character in her own right. She was extremely elusive, um, and it was really hard to get her on camera. And that whole scene, actually, where we went to the arboretum in Belgium to see the witch hazels. I mean, that that again, you know, so many of these things are just sort of you try to engineer a little bit of a situation where you can hopefully get something that will work for the film. But that was very much all about, you know, Pete and I talked a bunch about how are we going to get Anya to actually be in the movie. And he was, you know, he finally said, oh, look, she loves this place in Belgium. Probably can get her to come with us. And and I think, um, you know, it was a great, I love that scene for, I mean, there's so much more material that I couldn't work into the film, but so much of it is just about, you know, you realize that she's so much more than this background presence. And yet that's, you know, she stays in the background. I'm really glad to hear that because I think across the horticultural world, it is acknowledged that Anya is almost a full partner to Pete and his work and his support network. And she ran the nursery for many years. I mean, I just knew all along, like if I didn't find a way to include her, that that would not only wouldn't be fair to the real story, but I, I just knew that I wouldn't hear the end of it. And, um, <laughs> you know, there's no way to convey in the absence of someone, or it's very hard to convey in their absence that that's what they chose. And so it was it was nice to be able to find a way to, to sneak her mm-hmm. into it without too much protest on her part. And she has a lovely statement in which she says, well, Pete is always lucky if I'm with him. And where he says, you know, she is the big force behind me and she always has been, something along those lines. And those were those were very meaningful acknowledgments, I think. Again, the advantage of having I mean, it was almost two years of shooting, I mean not nonstop, but but I I shot over the course of two years. I basically sort of did one cycle of seasons and and then went back for another round. It's nice to have enough time. I mean, it's such a luxury and it's very rare and not, 
you know, often affordable or whatever when you set out on a project to be able to dedicate that much time to really immersing yourself in the subject and their lives. But with those moments that came out, I think, on that trip, especially because that was that was late in the second year. So well into, you know, we'd spent a lot of time together at that point. And any initial sort of reluctance or, or awkwardness about how to be on camera, what to say and what not to say, you know, that had all fallen away. And I think also by the time that that scene had come around, I think, you know, it's also a conscious thing in, in Pete's mind and maybe Anya's as well, but realizing that that these are moments to actually reflect on the important things in their lives or the important things in the story that, you know, once it became apparent that I was trying to tell the story of how he arrived at where he's at, then it became easier, I think, to actually say out loud those kinds of things, you know, to mm -hmm. say she's the big force behind me or for, mm -hmm. for him to acknowledge out loud how important a role she's played. I think that's when it can really work well. And his reflective moments, especially in hindsight over the cycles of birth and life and death, both in a garden, but symbolically in human life as well. At this point, he he says at the point of filming that he's 71. I believe he's 73 this year. And those are some very, very moving moments. And they get to some of the kind of existential connection we have with gardens and with plants in the way they move us. Yeah, I think it goes back again to where I started probably with this project. I mean, the real the impetus being that first experience in the Lori Garden and having that emotional response or, or transformative response to the garden. I feel really strongly that the High Line, the success of the High Line is, is not just because it's elevated, because of the history of it, because of some of the interesting things they've done with it structurally. But, you know, what Pete's planting does and and the way that he's planted it's not just that it's pretty plants or it's a beautiful relaxing environment but there's that that, that other layer of connecting back to something wilder and trying to evoke in the highline in particular so they, you know they were really trying to evoke what had been there in its kind of derelict state which mm -hmm. was its own kind of wilderness i guess mm -hmm. um but you know that that it makes that connection for people without they don't ever have to think it but you know, I think there's a really profound disconnection that we have, especially in an urban environments. And I think the success of the High Line in particular is, is in large part due to what that's able to reconnect in a way, mm -hmm. um, however subtly or not subtly it does it. But I think that's and, and gardens, you know, the magic I've certainly come to appreciate, especially in public spaces, what that can do for people as we become more and more at a remove from nature. When I interviewed Rick Dark last year on the publication of the Gardens of the High Line that he worked on with Pete, that the element that really came through was the human life response to the life cycles of the plantings on the High Line and how just how incredibly engaged with those gardens the people of New York City and visitors to the area are that certainly came across as the most moving aspect of those gardens' success. Probably the thing that I have taken away from the project is not just another chance to explore the creative process, which I feel like is always ultimately kind of the subject of the films that I get to make, but but in this case in particular, it's it's really recognizing that other thing that goes on in these gardens, which is that deeper 
connection, whether it's to the idea of our own life cycles or just a natural life cycle or to nature itself. I mean, my, my wife has been reading She's in this sort of phase of reading all of these books that it feels like they're all just coming out, but the nature fix or the hidden life of trees or mm -hmm. the secret life of plants, but all these books that talk about, you know, that are literally analyzing the, um, the health benefits of, of getting out into nature and, you know, sort of really quantifying that, that there's something, there's something biological, you know, there's something psychological that takes place and, um, and I think, you know, Pete's gardens and the public gardens, they really, they illustrate that or they play a role in that. It's an amazing testament to those connections. The design process itself is referred back to several times sort of throughout the movie. You come back to touch on it. You start the film with him working on a design by hand, which is, you know, there's something unusual and beautiful about that in this day and age where most designers are working on a CAD program on a computer. And then sort of maybe midway through the movie, you see an opening of an exhibit at Hauserwerth in 2014 that is an art exhibit of his designs and his design process. Describe for us a little bit why you, why you brought this focus into the movie and why that spoke to you in quite the way that it did. I think it, that was probably down to my sort of naivete about whether it could be art or not. I mean, I think I just took that for, for a given, just because that's how I had responded to it. As I sort of talked to more and more plant people, in particular, it became apparent that this was not a, uh, an answered question, you know, or it was up for debate, or there was lots of opinions about whether, and also art people as well, but whether gardens are art or whether Pete's drawings can be art. Um, but for me, I, th it was the starting place, so it was easy to slip into that. And and it was, you know, a great coincidence that when I asked Pete from early on, I said, oh, are you working on anything in particular that maybe I could track from the drawings through to the to the planting? Um, and it just happened to be the project for, for Hauser & Wirth at the, the Durslade Farm project. Uh, and the fact that, you know, they're one of the largest art galleries in the world mm -hmm. and and um, that place in particular has become just this incredible art center so that all was coincidental and very uh, you know a lot of serendipity that that came to pass and it ended up being able to handle a lot of the the, the framing of whether you know can it be art how is it presented as art I mean that just all happened you know instead of somebody having to say it out loud necessarily that mm -hmm. you know his drawings could just be hung on a gallery wall and then the question becomes answered at least that way mm -hmm. but i think everybody has their response to the gardens but certainly every time people see pete's drawings it's it, there's a lot of the similar kind of ooing and aahing i mean mm -hmm. there's something artistic whether it's art or not what, what he's doing and the fact that they're hand drawn and you know they're fantastic and so for me being able to see them in process and then ultimately have them end up being displayed as they were at the exhibition. It's just a nice way to celebrate that aspect of his work. What would you say you're most proud of having completed the movie and having it screened 
already to certain extent around to different festivals and with the big opening come coming up on the 13th in New York City at the International Film Center what are you most proud of in this in this work Tom well the re- the reception is great and and certainly every time you set out to make a a film, uh, especially sort of independent documentaries, the the idea that you can find an audience and that you can reach an audience is is always the ultimate goal and and the the hope of every project. So to have succeeded as much as it's done already, and to and and to have realized that there is the potential for it to to play in other markets and to you know have a life both theatrically and then after that as well online or um, that's obviously really satisfying but I think for me the as I maybe as I mentioned before but you know just the fact that I was able to translate the experience that I had you know and because of the way I work it was just me and the camera it's there's not you know, there's no other crew. There's not a whole group of people that are crowded around Pete while he's working at the table or whatever. So it is very, it's very much me being to some extent a fly on the wall, or at least just a hopefully quiet observer a lot of the time. But so to be able to translate that experience and sort of give that to audiences is really the most satisfying thing. And the, and the fact that it seems to have, people seem to accept it or take it in or enjoy it or, or, or value it in some way enough to come, you know, to the theater or buy a ticket or you know, program it in a festival. That I think is the real satisfaction, you know, that I was able to do that, to do that well enough. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. I wish you all the best of luck with the movie and I hope it is shared far and wide by gardeners and non-gardeners alike. Thanks very much. It was a real pleasure. Thomas Piper is the filmmaker behind the new documentary film, Five Seasons, The Gardens of Pete Aldolf. The film was produced over two years with many in-person visits to Pete and his wife Anya's home and garden known as Humelo in the Netherlands, which they moved to in 1982. It was here that Pete's experimental garden design and plant research with the help of the internationally renowned nursery that Anya oversaw there for many years, that Pete's visual and conceptual garden work seeded, rooted, and flourished. The new documentary has been widely screened, but it has an official opening at the International Film Center in New York City on June 13th, at which Pete and Tom will both be present. Another opening will take place in Los Angeles on June 29th, at which Tom will be present. For more information on tickets and other openings across the country, please visit cultivatingplace.com. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways that people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by California Public Broadcasting and you. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. 
For many photos of Pete Aldolf's garden work, his illuminating hand drawings, and more images from the movie, as well as to subscribe to the Cultivating Place podcast so you never miss a conversation and you can listen whenever you want, head over to cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Yeah, this is uh, about the end. So we're cutting it back this, this week or next week. You even have to have the courage to cut into the beauty of it. You can see what I mean, that uh, uh, this uh, still has so much to say to you.